Good evening, everybody. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney, Artistic Director. Um, thank you all for joining us this evening for the next stop on the itinerary of architectural cities. This evening, focusing on Isfahan with Justine Clark and Mariam Grishay. Um, our final lecture for 2017 takes place on Monday, 16th of October, focusing on the architectural culture of Guadalajara, presented by Diego Ramirez Lovering, Head of Architecture at Monash University's Faculty of Arch Design and Architecture. To begin this evening, I'd like to sincerely acknowledge the Boon traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past and present and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Now to Isfahan. Once the capital of ancient Persia, Isfahan has a fascinating architectural history. Located on the main north-south and east-west routes crossing central Iran, it is widely held to be the most beautiful city in the Islamic world. A city centred on the river with renown, renown for bridges and gardens and a rich architectural heritage, including the world heritage site of the Maiden Imam a public urban square in the centre of Isfahan, also known as the Najd-e-Jahan, which translates as image of the world. It is one of the largest city squares in the world and demarcated by some of the most outstanding examples of Iranian and Islamic architecture, including the Royal Mosque, among other buildings, arcades and shops adorned with a polychrome profusion of enamelled ceramic tiles and decoration. Before I welcome our guest speakers tonight, I'd first like to thank Starwood Whiskey, who this evening have concocted the amazing infusion to create a malt, saffron and apricot highball. And I'd also like to equally thank our partners Abercrombie and Kent, bespoke travel consultants who offer unique and inspiring travel and cultural experiences around the world. And if you have a look under your seat this evening, um, Abercrombie and Kent have generously offered a $500 travel voucher for those of us who will be inspired to visit Iran after tonight's lecture. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce and welcome our guest speakers this evening, Justine Clark, who is an architectural editor, writer and critic. She is the co-founder of Parla, Women Equity Architecture, which advocates for greater gender equity in architecture and the built environment professions, and founding editor of the Parla website. Justine is a former editor of Architecture Australia and an honorary senior research fellow at the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne. Joining her is Dr. Miriam Gachet, Director of Architecture at the School of the Built Environment at the University of New South Wales. Her research focuses on the translations of modern and contemporary architectural ideas as they move between the dominant centres of modernist thought in Europe and America and the marginal yet robust sites of modernist practice in countries such as Australia, Iran and Bangladesh. Um, Mariam and Justine travelled together um, a number of years ago to Isfahan and we're really delighted they could join us um, this evening. There'll be time for questions at the end and Annabelle Lacroix, ACA's Curator of Public Programs, will be at hand with a roving microphone. So without further ado, please welcome Justine Clark and Mariam Gachet. Hi everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, so I was at the talk last month and Mark Burry started off by asking how many people in the audience had been to Barcelona and the answer was almost everybody. So we're really interested to know how many of you have been to Isfahan. It's pretty good. It's pretty good in Australia. <laughs> um, so um, Isfahan is a, a really remarkable city of architecture not only because of the very beautiful individual buildings, but because of the way that the architecture of the city is deeply entwined with its social and political structures and the development of these over time. And we're really looking forward to introducing you to Isfahan, um, for those of you who haven't been, and, and hopefully sharing some fond memories for those of you who have. Now, we need to tell you we're not experts. Um, but tonight we're drawing, as Max said, on our own travels to this wonderful city. Mariam has visited more than once, but my only trip was the one that we took together in 2014 with our families and another friend, uh, Brett Boardman. 
So tonight we're going to start um, by locating Isfahan within Iran and, and particularly in the context of our trip and then outline the major architectural moves of the Safavid period, which is what we're really going to focus on. And we're going to take you on a walk through some of the most significant works um, that we saw, um, and then finish with a very brief reflection on the various ways that architecture has been interpreted um, at particular moments in our more recent history. Um, oh, we have still got that one. Sorry, I thought we deleted that. Okay, so this is Tehran, um, the view from the plane. This is where um, mostly one would land in Iran. And this is us, um, and you'll see some of these people a number of times during the evening. Um, this is us in Yadzd, uh, and really who we travelled with did rather colour our experiences. Uh, so this is Tehran, um, as Justine said, it's a typical place of arrival for people who travel in Iran and it's a city where I was born and I lived there until I was 15 years old. Um, it's a, a megapolis, it's got 12 million population, it's quite difficult to navigate when you first get there, but a very fascinating city, particularly in context of contemporary culture of Iran. But for most citizens, uh, visitors of Iran, when they first arrive there, um, the main point of interest um, is the historical cities of Iran. Might have to walk across the images a little bit, but you can see on the map the most common route um, for tourists is the heritage monuments within them and are def definitely musts to see. So we did, we did the same thing. We, we started our journey with a flight to Shiraz and then from Shiraz, um, of course, the ancient site of Persepolis and the monuments of Persepolis and then worked our way up north um, uh, by car. And <laughs> it's actually a nice way of travelling. The landscape is quite remarkable between these cities. You can and, stop and take photos. Um, <laughs> uh, it's very much a desert landscape um, and interspersed with um, bursts of greenery which comes through the underground water channels that are present. And next slide. Um, uh, from Shiraz and Persepolis, we went to the city of Yazd, which is very known for its wind towers and environmental systems and the uh, vernacular system of mud buildings. And next slide. Um, uh, arrival to Esfahan, which um, was much anticipated, and I think it's actually a nice route because you kind of await arrival to Esfahan, which is, it is always so pleasurable. And then after Esfahan, we went to the city of Kashan, which is quite close to Esfahan, and it's a wonderful city of 19th century courtyard houses, um, which was built by cloth merchants in the 19th century, and then back to Tehran. But of course, tonight we're going to concentrate the talk on Esfahan. Okay, so we're um, going to focus tonight really on the city that was um, produced by the Safavid uh, dynasty uh, between the dynasty between 1501 and 1736. Um, this was a, a quite a remarkable dynasty, and and the um, third Shah of that dynasty, Shah Abbas produced uh, very quickly, in fact, a very remarkable range of work and really kind of shifted the focus of the city. Um, but more than that, um, the, the Safavid period was notable for the centralisation of government, the um, Twelver School of Shia Islam becoming the official religion, um, the development of a working bureaucracy, um, the institute institutionalisation of the um, religious clergy, um, Abbas subdued the tribes, invited non-Muslims to his court and created a really formidable army. Um, within an, the domain of culture he moved the capital to, uh, from Tabriz to Isfahan and made, um, as we said, a kind of really fascinating kind of architectural and artistic uh, body of work there, all of which really were quite tightly integrated into these other um, administrative um, and the sort of um, apparatus of the state. So these things are kind of not distinct and separate, but they're really intertwined. And there he is in the middle there, looking very fabulous. 
Okay, so we have um, two images by way of just locating you, um, and particularly this introduction of the 17th century part of Esfahan. Um, And um, the, uh, the design of the new city can be um, categorized in three ways. One is that the decision was made to deliberately situate the new city at a distance from the old city. And so the juxtaposition was very clear and deliberate from the outset. The other two strategies, um, this drawing is better to explain, is that the new city uh, utilised two urban strategies. One was a square, um, a very um, monumental square in terms of its scale. Um, and the square had four monuments in four cardinal locations. The bazaar and the centre of economy to the north, um, a new congre congregational mosque to the south, a private mosque or a private chapel single dome mosque to the east and the entrance gateway to the palace quarter which was quite vast to the west of the square. The third strategy was the creation of a long promenade which um, stretched from the palace quarter all the way to the river, the river of Zayanda Rood and Along this promenade were a sequence of very lavish gardens and fountains, and this was a pathway for the public, as was the public square, um, as a very generous space for public pleasure and activity. And important in the conception of the promenade is the term Chahar Bak, which in Farsi means four gardens. Um, it's a term that uh, it borrows from the Quran, the four paradise. And uh, what's interesting in Esfahan is up until this point, the char bak usually relates to gardens that are made in four parts. But in this um, composition, the concept is used as an urban move and inscribes the idea of the four garden paradise as an urban motif in the city, which was um, a quite a new strategy. So we're really going to take you on a walk um, through this map. So we're Starting at the top in the, um, in the medieval part of um, Isfahan and we'll walk then through the bazaar, down to the square, look at the four major buildings there, go through the gardens to a couple of pavilions and down to the river. So um, having looked at the kind of major planning moves, we're now going to sort of just take you through the streets and through those buildings. So we're starting here at the Friday Mosque. Um, this is the first congregation, oldest congregational mosque in Iran. It was founded in 1841, and it's had, um, it's been developed continuously over that period up until the 20th century. So there's a sort of built, there's this accretion and development of all kinds of architectural styles and architectural um, manifestations of Islam through this, this one building. And, and again, it's very distinct from the, the, new, the buildings that were built in the 17th century um, further down. Uh, it was also the first project to adapt the four courtyard layout, layout of the Sassadid Palace um, to the mosque. And so you see the four um, Ewans here uh, surrounded by the... Um, <laughs> what's those... What's, what are they called? Oh, it's just I'm going to hand over to Mariam now. <laughs> I think that the, the, the central courtyard with the four portico avans, um, which you see in this building, is quite common, and then it reappears again in the new mosque. But what's very different is the um, multiple column spaces and the structural system of the mosque, which the interiors will will show in a second. So that's the um, that's the courtyard space. You can see the avans, um, the kind of uh, monumental entryways into various um, prayer spaces. Um, and, and with various ornate um, tile work. And uh, particular to this um, period was uh, the method of tiling 
because they didn't have the knowledge of applying multiple colors on a single tile. The tiles were cut from uh, pieces of tiles of the one color, and so piece by piece constructed these um, floral patterns and sometimes abstracted um, uh, calligraphy. So incredibly labor-intensive, and, and later on we'll talk about another method of tiling later in one of the later moths. So, um, but I think this, this image, you really can see how it's made up of all these small individual pieces in a kind of mosaic approach to tiling. Um, one of the really lovely things about this mosque is the sort of layers and layers of different um, periods of architecture and um, the use of also of a kind of single material treated differently um, to create these different spatial impressions. It's uh, unadorned. Uh, the, the decorative surface is not present and so it has a very um, curious affinity with the modernist aesthetic in the sense that it feels both unfinished and kind of elemental. And the tectonic order of the brickwork and the mortar is present throughout the spaces of the interior. Um, and you can kind of see this starts to create um, various patterns but also um, this uh, line work that is present across all the surfaces of the interior space and then um, the light quality which is through these pierce um, openings to the sky uh, gives it you know this wonderful um, syncopated quality throughout and here's you can see the kind of line work contrast of the brickwork and the mortar which um, you know creates this incredible overlaid pattern right through the various interiors of the space um, for people who don't have a really um, intimate knowledge of history, it's very difficult to work out in this mosque which parts from which period. It's um, very fluid and layers and layers built over one another. Which means that as you're walking through that you have this, um, you know, this kind of change of, the, of experience, but, but unless, well, we're not serious art historians, so we don't know where they belong, and I imagine that many people are in that situation, but there's certainly this kind of... Um, a kind of consistency of experience, but also this constant change. Okay. So um, from the uh, old mosque to the top of the slide, the uh, Friday mosque, um, the existing bazaar, which was adjacent to the mosque, was kept, but not changed. What changed was that the informal line of shops, which extended south from the old mosque, was formalized in the new scheme. So when this new square was built, a line connecting the new square and the old mosque um, was confirmed as this covered long bazaar, which is two kilometers long. And it's still a very active and busy um, place today, which, as Mariam said, is two kilometres long. It's the longest covered bazaar, I believe, in the world. We've been reading a lot of things that are the first and the longest and the biggest. So, <laughs> um, But it's really a remarkable experience. And it, it's organised um, partly according to the types of goods for sale, which is also you know, quite a sort of wonderful experience to, to wander through, um, probably not unlike other bazaars that one might have visited. Um, but pretty spectacular. Um, but the other thing that's really remarkable and the reason we're showing you some images when it's closed also is this, the, the long, that long path is covered with um, vaults, vaults and um, domes of various kinds right the way along the length of it. And all of them are let light into the space. And so there's, a, there's this wonderful sense of variation and again, consistency as you walk along that space. Um, with the light filtering in. Some of it's really dilapidated, some of it's in very good condition. Um, it's really just this remarkable walk. Uh, equally remarkable, I think, as to when it's busy. Here's some more. So much, this is quite elaborate. Um, but of course, no, oh, sorry. You <laughs> The, the bazaar is more than shops, and so as you saw in the plan down towards the square, it becomes quite fat. It's, you know, there are a large number of, of caravanserai, of hammam, of other kind of, of you know, tea houses, all sorts of activity happening within the space of the, the extended space of the bazaar. A lot of that has gone, um, but some of it is also being uh, looked after, and this is one of the caravanserai 
which is undergoing um, work. Um, others were, you know, kind of being used as storage. Um, so, again, you kind of wander and find things. And it's remarkable. And so at the end of the journey, you um, come out and you are at the the new square, the square of Naqsh Jahan, and it's a truly an uplifting experience when you walk in the square. Um, and next slide, Justina. Oops, here, sorry. Uh, here he is just you immediately outside of the bazaar, the gateway into the bazaar, and looking across the square at the Royal Mosque um, of uh, the square. And the square was built um, over two stages within close proximity of each other right at the turn of the 17th century, initially as one story um, height arcade, and then um, within 10 years that there was added a second um, layer to it, which made it more monumental and has this kind of pattern, pattern of open enclosure, open enclosure coupled with a horizontal and vertical emphasis in the composition so along the way. It's 512 metres long and 163 metres wide, so it's really, really big. Like, it's much bigger than Samarco, it's much bigger than many of the squares that one might compare it with. Its, um, its scale is, is really remarkable. Um, the, the pools in the middle were added by the Pahlavis in the 1970s, um, but it really, you do have the sense of, of, of an, a living space. It's, it's, you know, it's not just a, a tourist destination, a living space which has remained remarkably um, intact. And you can kind of see that that labyrinth-like um, pathway of the bazaar, once it reaches the square, joins up with the shops that um, per, uh, go along the perimeter of the square in this more form formalised manner. Okay. So, um, as Mary mentioned before, the, the square is bounded by four... Um, large and significant buildings and institutions of state, of religion and of commerce. And so at the end here, you, again, you can see the bazaar. Um, those large spaces that you can see within the bazaar plan are, are caravanserai and other public amenity. And then at the end, um, the plan of the Grand Mosque. To the... Um, East. east. <laughs> <laughs> to the east is the Ali Kapoor Palace. No, uh, to no? the west. To the west. Sorry. To the west. I'm <laughs> to the, well, to the east is the uh, Mosque of Sheikh Lotullah, the smaller, much more intimate and private mosque. And to the west is the Ali Kapoor Palace, which is the gateway into the whole um, palace sector. Oops. So here, um, a drawing from... Uh, the 1830s, Pascal Costa, and I think you can again see the degree to which um, it's still quite intact. And, um, and a lot of the documentation that we have is from Europeans travelling through the 19th century, um, as of course they did everywhere. Uh, so. But again, this is the Grand Mosque you can see at the end, the dome of the, the smaller mosque and the Ali Kapoor gateway to the palace. One of the um, uh, qualities of the square you can see in this image is the way that the dome of the mosque and the main mosque um, body rotates relative to the square. And that's more clear in the next slide, in the image of the next slide, where you can see the um, rotation of the mosque um, in relative to the boundary of the square in order to turn towards Mecca. And there's some... Um, debate about why the square in itself wasn't oriented towards Mecca, and there's various interpretations. Um, one is that the square was aligned with existing pathways um, and sort of systems of the city that was related to the bazaar and the main um, route of trade. The other one is that the reorientation was deliberate of separation of the secular and the sacred. And the third is that the mosque can be more readily read, the dome, from the, within the square itself. But that's certainly a very prominent quality of the plan. And you can see again the um, same compositional principle as the um, Friday Mosque, which is the central court with the four avons. Um, in this case, you have the madrasa to either side of the main um, mosque space. And the, the photo photograph shows that central space, um, and as you can see, incredibly colourful. Which, 
So, again, a view, th and a, 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 like, like but not like the previous mosque, so this kind of layering of space. And so here we have a view through to the, the central courtyard. But now on this side, looking into the madrasa, the colleges, which were extraordinarily beautiful. And I think we were very lucky to be there at the right time of day and the right time of year with the trees. It was absolutely... Um, but the, um, we talked about the tiling at the... Um, the Friday Mosque, and here, with this tiling, is one of the first times where uh, a, a different approach was taken of, of painting colour onto the tiles so that um, a whole lot more colour could be used, and it became, it was much more, it's still a great deal of craftsmanship, but a, a much more efficient means of, of producing this kind of decorative um, surface. And uh, this is just an image. Um, once I was there during Ramadan, and so um, you can see during religious festivals, the um, the whole uh, Friday prayer comes right out and co uh, covers the entire um, square. It's only once that I've seen that, but it's still, as Justin said, it's it's alive and in, in use the mosque and also the square very much. Okay, so this is um, looking across the square to the second mosque. Um, which Maram can pronounce much better than I can. Masjid al-Sheikh Sheikh Lutfullah was the king's father-in-law and also part of the um, religious leadership um, of the kingdom. And uh, this, this mosque for, was designed specifically for him. Sometimes people say that it was designed for the harem, association with the harem, and there's an underground passage um, between the palace and the mosque. Um, I'm not sure about that, but um, certainly the name, the name um, is after Sheikh Lutfullah. And it's an incredibly um, beautiful mosque, this one. Uh, and it's small. It's like the, other, the, other, the large mosque, which is for a congregation, is, is um, you know, true, really remarkable in its own right. But this one is just this little jewel. And it's um, absolutely awe-inspiring when you, when you walk through. So you go, uh, that's the... Again, this incredible, incredibly elaborate um, entryway. And then you enter through a, a relatively small passage and quite a, although it looks, looks like there, but quite dark. So you're going from this enormous space of the square through this um, quite small and, and, as I remember when we were there, fairly crowded pathway into this uh, single, single space of the, of the mosque itself, which is... Um, with this incredible roof. And in terms of this um, tiling technique, I think this, um, the surface of this, the inner surface of the dome is one of the best known and it's just truly remarkable. Uh, I think this, this space really also highlights this architecture of thresholds, that the way that the height and hierarchy of spaces are carefully choreographed to um, heighten the sense of space. And th in this particular arrival sequence where you go from the vast square through this very dark, dim, low-height corridor space and then arrive in this space with quite mystical light almost, is the experience is truly uh, remarkable. Okay, and now we move from the uh, religious to the secular, looking back across the square to Ali Kapoor, which, as we've said, the entry to the, um, to the palace grounds and the administrative side of the, of the square. So this um, was built in a number of phases. Um, there's six stories, I think, and the, the last phase was this... Um, ver well, veranda? <laughs> Yeah, I'm like sure there's a better word than veranda for that structure. <laughs> a pillar, it, this pillar platform was added only in the mid-17th century. And we're going to try and go through, um, you know, make some alignment with some other buildings yet. But, yeah, as Justin said, initially it was just two storeys. Then the rear building um, was raised up to five levels. And mainly a building that was used for... Um, entertainment and ceremonies and invitation to dignitaries and celebrations. Apparently the Persian Festival of New Year was celebrated in this building, um, you know, quite often. And also then public, uh, watching the public um, events that happened in, in the square. But the uh, addition of the pillared 
um, uh, platform is quite significant because it made the presence of the king much more public um, and open to that front um, square. So again, the um, interior is um, a very refined and ornate experience, but what um, the, the truly remarkable um, aspect of, I'm sorry, interior is this, which is on the upper level, the music room. And this um, is extraordinarily three-dimensional. And not only that, but the dark cutouts you see really are cutouts. So there's space behind those. And this whole thing's made of very, very fine plaster um, uh, to give you know, certain acoustic qualities as well as these extraordinary decorative qualities. Oops, sorry. And from the open platform, you can look across to the whole of the square, but very directly at the Sheikh Lotfullah Mosque. And this was a deliberate, I mean, for the um, Safavid kings, they claimed divine right to rulership. And um, so this appeal across the public realm to the sacred was a deliberate act and this um, sense of support that um, kingship gained from alignment and collaboration with the religious order um, at the time. Okay, so now we're going to move through Alikapur and to two pavilions in the gardens. Um, there were many, many pavilions. Uh, there are two remaining uh, that we'll take you through. And again, pavilions for the, um, for the functions of the state. So this, uh, this is called Chael Sutun, um, translates into 40 columns. Uh, the name came from the 20 columns that support the awning and their reflection in the pond, um, making the 40 columns. Uh, this was a later building, um, dates to more the middle, middle of the 17th century, and it was one of the largest, they call it a micro-palace, within the macro-palace setting, and um, it was for um, foreign dignitaries mainly, very ceremonial um, procession through the garden and then arriving at the um, pavilion. The relationship between the pavilion and the garden here becomes quite oh. important. So, the, so you can see in the plan, it, it's set, the, the plan on the left is set within the garden and the plan on the right shows you the sort of distinct um, areas within that. So we have the, the public, uh, well not the public, the, um, the open space with the, the, the very fine pillars in the garden moving back into these other more in, contained spaces. Um, there we go. So here it is in the garden. And uh, the, the, one of the really remarkable qualities of this building is the fineness of the timber columns. Um, my mum was a structural engineer. I always remember she had telling me she's not sure how they calculated these columns. <laughs> um, they're very tall. Uh, the awning is, feels very lofty and the columns taper to this very fine point. Um, additionally, they were decorated with very fine mirror, mirror work, which um, you know complicated their reading as well, and very fine painted work on the ceiling of the awning. And you can kind of uh, see that the columns mimic the trees. Um, there's this march of the trees across the garden onto the platform. And so if the um, architecture of the Maidan or the square is much about the threshold in an urban sense, um, these pavilions in the gardens became very much about the negotiation of nature and culture and the liminal zone between these two settings. And the biggest space of the palace was given to this outdoor platform, which was um, vital to the festivals um, and the um, large banquets which were held in honour of dignitaries. Uh, this is described by recent historians actually being very, very fundamental to the Safavid mode of kingdom. Here it is again, looking through those trees, with the trees and the columns starting to sort of blur into one. With the, and again, the very um, fine, fine detail. So this is looking up, um, looking up in that um, outdoor area, looking up at that painted coffered ceiling. Uh, yeah, go on. No, go on. No, no, you go. Oh, well, very unusual um, 
for this period was the murals, um, the, these very um, carefully painted murals um, which celebrated various moments of Safavid history, including victorious battles, um, as well as um, tales and depictions of banquets and uh, all sorts of things, and they've been recently restored and um, are in person. Okay, so we're going back further through the garden now down to um, the next building, the Hashbehesh. Uh, this this one's interesting too because it hasn't been very. It, it's been um, in terms of its current state, it's been stabilised, but it's it's in a state of disrepair. It's not uncared for, but it's you know the kind of heritage approach of we'll just stabilise it where it is rather than try and um, restore and recover. This is a, an un, a, a very there are some formal similarities, obviously, with the, the use of these incredibly fine columns, but it's a very, very different plan form. Um, a, a nine, it's an oct octagonal... Octagon Venus square. Yeah. <laughs> uh, OK, so this is just, again, you can see, um, see the interior spaces just kind of left, left as they are to a degree. But then within that, this, tr this um, remarkable, again, painted um, dome hot, hot in the, within the centre of that octagon. You look up a lot when you yeah, travel. So many, there are so many great <laughs> it's domes. It's city there. of ceilings. <laughs> um, uh, the, the thing about Hash Behesh that should be pointed out as well is that as opposed to Chael Sutun, which was more in the administrative sector of the palace quarter, Hash Behesh was in the harem area with the more private zone of the um, quarter. Um, so it's much more centred building. It does not have the same language of the kind of mediating spaces between the inner court and the outer public. It's, um, and it's very sensual, in both in its ornamentation. Also, um, it had um, extensive use of fountains and fireplaces, so very elemental um, decorations within the interior. Uh, it was, again, later than Chael Sutun. I should point, point out that the um, uh, alterations to Oligopu, uh, the gateway in the square to the palace, was done after Chael Sutun's construction. So you can see that um, pillared veranda making its way into back into the square. Um, this building signals a different emphasis, partly because it was in the harem, but partly by the late um, second half of 17th century or mid-17th century, that sort of lavish performances of kingship within the Savabit had subdued a little bit. So, as we said, the, um, the building is, is kind of in a stable condition, left as it is, and so there are, you know, there are these wonderful um, murals still in place, and uh, small birds that we liked. <laughs> But also, as you can see, it's, um, it's not all entirely tidied up, which is, you know, again, quite appealing to our sensibility. This is one of the fireplaces. Another ceiling, and again, back into the garden. So not many gardens remain of that period, um, and... Uh, for example, Hashbehesh was one of 40 such mansions, probably the most um, developed, but uh, all of them have been destroyed. Uh, so, yeah, we go to the... Uh, so along that main promenade, one makes one way to the bridges. Um, incredible sequence of masonry bridges ac across Zoya and the Rood. Uh, and it, it, the, the bridges also really are like buildings and places of public congregation. Um, and in fact, I would say that the civic centre of the city is really at the bridges now. The government spent a lot of money um, uh, developing the promenade along the river as well. And so you do see at night time in particular a lot of the Espahanis occupying the bridge. It's very lively and particularly a lot of young people um, uh, occupy this, these zones in the city. So this, this is the, mo the largest and most extensive of the bridges and it has a tea house in the middle as you can see but also these um, stepping structures down into the water. So it, it's just this extraordinary public space in the morning and the, but the evening was particularly um, lively. Okay. 
And also, um, bridges are inhabitable. They're inhabitable on the edge, they're inhabitable underneath, and inhabitable, of course, in down that centre. There are 11, so here's, here's those steps down to the water. Uh, there, so there are 11 bridges. Um, anyway, anyway, here's Mariam. She adopted our children. <laughs> so um, just like like to take a moment to um, say that, to sort of locate this a little bit in my own personal history, that my recent trips to Esfahan really have been in company of architect friends, like <laughs> slightly tragic, like uh, attention to architecture. Um, but previous to that, um, in my childhood, and here's the next slide, um, there I am, the nerdy kid to the far of the slide. But I, I was brought up in Iran, as I said, until I was 15. And I um, only knew Isfahan as a tourist destination. And I, I was going through photograph, family photographs looking for pictures of Isfahan. But then I came across this image, which to me is so um, 1970s and the optimism with which kind of um, uh, my family was, was filled. Um, and I think a lot of uh, this uh, 1970s um, push towards modernisation, which my family was part of. So uh, both parents were both engineers, and this is in the town of Natanz, where my grandparents lived, and I spent all my holidays there, which is about very close to Isfahan. Um, but I really only knew Isfahan as a tourist um, place. Um, only visited it a few times. Next slide. I lived in the first high-rise, um, not tall buildings, residential buildings in, in Iran um, with my sister. And next slide. And um, I chose these couple of images um, to, from my dad's um, uh, time in the army when he was doing his compulsory army service. And as engineers, they traveled uh, across Iran working on major infrastructure projects. Um, and for them, the, the past, the, the tradition um, was uh, something, again, and something they visited during um, their time off or a, as tourists. But the relationship of this past to the modern and progressive present was something that was being at the time negotiated. Next slide. Um, so this is uh, the time during the Pahlavi regime, the second Pahlavi, Reza Shah and Farah Pahlavi, which uh, um, their regime, at least in my family's history, there, there, there was a lot of tension. My family didn't agree um, with a lot of the principles of, of the government. Nonetheless, it was a period of um, rapid modernization and push for a secular Iran. And in context of secular Iran, their built heritage, particularly Islamic heritage, um, was somewhat problematic or had to be renegotiated. Its relevance had to be negotiated into the present. The Farahe Pahlavi was um, instrumental to this uh, because she was an architect by training. She had studied architecture in France. And she was very much interested in reviving um, craft as well as the architectural heritage of Iran and, and working out how it could reinform contemporary um, works. So here she is um, with a number of very well-known architects from the period whom she brought to Iran for this um, International Congress of Architects in 1970. And, if, and um, Iran captured the imagination of, of many during this period, and this is a um, special issue of Architectural Review, a very, very influential British magazine from 1973, entirely devoted to Isfahan. Um, fantastic documentation. We've used this quite a lot and <laughs> look at working out our, um, you know, and learning more about the city to talk to you about it. Um, fairly dreadful text when you read it. It's terribly condescending and arrogant and kind of colonialist, but they did that everywhere too, didn't they? Um, so, and I mean, I was, I first knew about Isfahan um, in the School of Architecture in Auckland in in the mid to late 80s, where we were taught um, by this man called John Dixon, who used to show the most remarkable, give us the most remarkable lectures, um, a kind of early multimedia experience. You know, there's screens all over the place, there'd be music, um, and there'd be all these photographs of, of buildings and spaces he'd taken out. He was notorious for having never left New Zealand, but taken out of books on angles to get the right impression. And so when, um, when I started telling people we were going to go to Iran, 
for a holiday a few years ago, my friends in Australia were often like, oh, isn't that a bit dangerous? My friends in New Zealand were like, Isfahan um, and the bazaar. And they could, you know, a friend of mine could draw the section of the bazaar from memory 20 years later. So um, I guess it's, it's kind of interesting the way these places come in and out of consciousness of, of, um, of the West also. Here we are. Uh, um, in this context of um, the 70s, Iran, and rethinking of the relevance of the past, um, we go back to the cities that we went to. And um, the discourse was interesting because they, they were interested in the built heritage, but not so interested in um, Islamic associations. So in that um, setting, you have the um, Persepolis was easy to admit into the Pahlavi rhetoric because it was pre-Islamic built heritage. So was, in a way, the um, architecture of Yazd, the, the wind towers, the vernacular, which had this um, environmental emphasis, and that continues to the present day, I think. Um, Esfahan um, was really at the core of Islamic Iran, and um, nonetheless, um, Isfahan was amongst the um, cities that were also um, well received, let's say, by uh, not only Farah, but by, by, by um, the people who were interested in inventing a new language for the architecture of the Pahlavis. Next slide. And um, this kind of um, monumental edifices which were built during the Pahlavi time, which um, drew on um, Islamic sources. And uh, the main interpretation of Isfahan, which allowed that, was one of a modern city. So um, it was very much this contrast between the medieval and the modern, also the technological advances which the domes and the vaults had used, um, the fineness of the pillars. Um, even my mother's own narrative was embedded in that concept of Isfahan as a modern city rather than as an Islamic city. Next image. But of course, we know now that there was the Islamic Revolution in 1979 at, at the foot of the Shah's uh, celebratory monument to monarchy. And um, you know, interpretations of cities continue. Um, and next slide. And um, uh, scholars, contemporary scholars have got interesting interpretations of Isfahan now, which I think um, it's really uh, worth engaging with, particularly if you're traveling there. And um, it starts to differentiate understanding of Esfahan from one of a modern or a distinct um, edifice to the medieval Esfahan. Um, the interest here is of um, the significance of Shia Islam to the Safavid regime. And um, there is an art historian, Susan Babai, which um, I've been reading some of her writing, who argues that these um, liminal thresholds that um, characterize so much of Isfahan are very much related to the Safavid um, effort to introduce Shiism, and particularly the 12 Imam Shiism, as the official religion of, the, um, of Iran at the time. And that this mode of governance, because there's a, uh, in the 12 system, the last Imam Mehdi is yet to come, and the kings who claimed divine right to rulership um, uh, maintained a status through the image of Mehdi, who was just, um, uh, who, who had this reputation of like, justice and presence and visibility. And that uh, this architecture of Isfahan, the presence of the kings, the presence of the rituals of kingship within public space, um, that fine line between the royal and the public, between being visible and invisible, is very much linked to this junction between the Persian systems of performance, as we see in Persepolis, and that um, the colonnades, platforms of Persepolis and festivals, and then the Shia Islam and the principles of Shia Islam together combined. And this is a new understanding of Isfahan, its public rituals of the time, and the thresholds in architecture. Thank you. So as you can see, I was incredibly lucky to go to Iran with, <laughs> with Miriam. <laughs> um, but that's it. Um, I guess the next question is who wants to go to Iran? <laughs> um, and thank you. Anyone have any question? 
Thanks. Um, I, I just wanted to ask, sort of what time of year were you there? Were you there? It was November. November. Late November, early December. So. March and September are really good times to go, but now it's very busy as well. It's, uh, there's very touristy now, yep. and a lot of these cities in particular, so slightly either end of those okay. is better. <laughs> Great. And not Thanks. too hot. What happened under Khomeini's, like, let's say, reign during that time? What happened um, architecturally, like, let's say, with the great infrastructure um, projects and stuff like that? Like, what happened? Mm. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, heritage, the culture of heritage, the monuments, um, initially, the monuments, pre-Islamic monuments, like Persepolis, um, became under threat. Um, there were instances where even, you know, it looks like likely that parts of Persepolis might get um, abandoned. But that was very, very short-lived. Um, restoration culture has been quite sympathetic to these monuments. Um, still, uh, I, I think when we were there, uh, our friend Brett Boardman, who's a photographer, was um, surprised at the level of freedom by which you can um, walk through these monuments and so on. So they still haven't been fully administered into that sort of protection culture. But um, yeah, that, that it, this is slow restoration, slow, slow restoration, I would say. It's been consistently going through. But you've also got a theory about how new programs are being used to. Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, I, I'm, I, I'm interested in, because it, the cultural restoration is in a sense relaxed. So in the city of Kaishan, for example, the 19th century fabric, you, you can go and buy some of the second-rate history houses. Only the very, very, Which are pretty good. very elite you know, yeah, um, things are listed and, and totally protected. So um, you're finding at the moment that um, a lot of people can purchase some of these buildings and restore them and through arguments for restoration introduce contemporary programs in there such as galleries and cinemas and hotels and and so I think restoration is a really nice lens for looking at the culture and politics as well in Iran at the moment. Can we have a drink? <laughs> well th thank you very much um, for your contribution it was a really beautiful talk and um, yeah, really made me want to travel for sure. <laughs> um, please uh, join me in thanking Justine uh, and Mayim. <laughs> 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 <laughs>